It's official. Tim Ryan is announced as a Democratic candidate for U.S. Senate. It's the first Democrat to officially be in the race. Maybe the only one we'll have to see. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. We're back for another week of discussions of the news. Happy Monday, all. Happy Monday. Monday. Is it only Monday? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And it's the beginning of Monday. I know, I know. <laughs> Let's start. Why is demand for the coronavirus vaccine plummeted in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, it's mind-boggling. We've talked about this. You know, six weeks ago, you couldn't buy an appointment. You had to fight like a dog to find a place to get it. Now, you can get it everywhere and nobody wants it. What's going on? Yeah, there there are millions of Ohioans who are hesitant about it, apparently. You know, public health officials said that a lot of people are on the fence rather than, you know, dead set against it. But and and they're still hopeful. But the fact is, there are a lot of people out there who just aren't aren't scooping up these appointments anymore. And as you said, yeah, there there was the mad rush, like, I got to get my shot. I got to get my shot. And now it's like, you know, come on and get them, you know. Laura Hancock and Rich Exner did some looking into this, crunching numbers and so forth. And, um, you know, they found that some people are hesitant because the vaccines were developed so quickly in comparison to, you know, the way vaccines are normally approved. And some people are concerned about long-term effects or side effects. And they also hear contradictions about, you know, this one's 90% effective and that one's 70% effective, whatever. But there was a Census Bureau survey that that shed some light on this. Nearly a fifth of Ohio adults said they either probably or definitely won't get the vaccine. That's according to the Census Bureau survey that was completed at the end of March. And better than half of those people said they were concerned about side effects. So, you know, some people also said they didn't believe they needed it. You know, there's a real urban-rural divide here, too. With the rural numbers, they're they're driving everything down. They've got lower vaccination rates in a lot of small southern Ohio counties. Among the biggest counties, you know, there's like nearly half of eligible people had gotten their first dose, but the smallest counties, something like thirty seven point five. So, so they're trying to encourage people. You know, Governor Mike DeWine's urging providers to work with unions and employers and other groups to to get like clinics going, you know, for employees. And as we've said before on this podcast, he's also considering changing his metric for lifting the health orders to one that's more focused on vaccinations rather than um, case uh, rates. I think he's just going to lift the orders any day now because the people want to get vaccinated have been vaccinated and the people that don't won't. The, The other striking thing, and I don't think we have this based in Ohio, but nationally, is the difference in education. The, mm-hmm. the higher the education level, the, the less likely people are to say, I'm not getting the shot, which offers a little bit of an opening that maybe if you can reach these people that, that didn't go beyond high school with an accessible explanation of why this really is in their best interest, maybe you can persuade them. Uh, I had wondered last week whether the people that have decided I'm not doing it are just dug in. I think you could say that for Republican men. They're just, they're not doing it. But can can I jump into when you? Yeah, Layla Tassi. 
I, I got to believe that the Johnson and Johnson debacle also isn't doing any favors for the vaccine effort. I, I have a few friends who were vaccine hesitant. And then when the Johnson and Johnson shot came out, they were like, that's the only one I'm going to take. And for, for whatever reason, that technology was OK with them. And then as soon as it turned out that there was this tiny uh, percentage of people who had negative side effects or who died as a result of these blood clotting issues, that was it for them. They were the vaccine was off the table. And I know also, you know, the vaccine queens who vaccine, they had a whole list of people who would only accept Johnson and Johnson. So now I, I'm sure people are just like, oh, you know, which way is up with this vaccine program if they if they can't trust the, the safety of of one shot, which is now back on the market, then then I right. think the hesitancy has got to be even greater now. Well, a national survey was released this morning that showed that the huge majority of Americans don't trust the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which is interesting. That's what my feeling was. If I have the choice, why would I go with that one? Why, why not go with the other one that hasn't had any problems? And it seems like most of America is going that way. I'm a little bit surprised that the number of people you say would only accept the Johnson and Johnson yeah. because the efficacy rate of the mRNA vaccines is so good. I mean, you know, you're just not seeing people get sick who got the Pfizer or the Moderna right. vaccines. And so it seems like that new technology is is great. People are wondering, what does it mean in 10 years? Will, you know, will this have bad effects on people in 10 years? But I, I, I thought that by now that everybody would know somebody that had died or gotten terribly sick and would want to avoid that. But still large people are not. Mm-hmm. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is there a chance the Justice Department could reopen the civil rights investigation into the police killing of 12-year-old Tamir Rice in 2014 after that investigation was summarily closed without explanation in the waning days of Donald Trump's presidency? Layla Tassi, this would mean a lot to Tamir's mom. Yes, it would. You know, it seems that there, there is a chance for some justice in Tamir's case after all. Senator Sherrod Brown and House members Tim Ryan, Joyce Beatty, and Marcy Kaptur have requested that the DOJ reopen the investigation into Tamir's death, which is something that Tamir's mother, Samaria, has has really been advocating for. And in fact, the legislator's letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland echoes a recent letter that Ms. Rice sent as well. The investigation into Tamir's death was opened during the Obama administration but then was just, you know, as you said, Chris, abruptly closed in, in December 2020 under President Trump, just as, as his administration was coming to a close. And, and they cited a lack of evidence to bring charges against the officers involved. Everyone probably remembers that a grand jury declined to charge the officers in this case, Timothy Lohman and Frank Garmbach. Garmbach was driving the police cruiser. He was suspended for 10 days, which was later reduced to five days in arbitration. Lohman was the shooter and he was fired, but not for the shooting itself. He was fired for lying on his job application about why he lost his previous job. So the DOJ is really the last chance at justice for Tamir. And hopefully, you know, the moment is is right for, for this case to get a fair shake. Yeah, there was such a controversy when Tim McGinty, when he was prosecutor, didn't get the case to right. charges because... There were a lot of people that saw this as uh, not a justifiable homicide. 
and there was hope that the Justice Department would do it. And they they announced an investigation. That how long did it go? Five years without any right. developments, and then all of a sudden closed just before Donald Trump left office. It was very odd. Uh, we'll have to see if they can get it get it going again. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is the multi-county agency that makes decisions on transportation issues ready to nix three Interstate 271 interchanges that are on the drawing board? And where are they? Laura Johnston, it's a pretty big deal when NOACA does something like this. Right. And NOACA stands for the Northeast Ohio Area-Wide Coordinating Agency, which is why we call it NOACA. But they're recommending rejecting these full interchanges proposed at I-71 and Route 57 in Medina and Boston Road and I-71 in Strongsville and then 271 in White Road way on the northeast side of Cuyahoga County. And so these are all pretty far out in the suburbs, none of these is core areas. And the idea is that where you spend the money on these interchanges help determine priorities. That's whether the region keeps going on sprawling for automobile-dependent white majority suburbs at the expense of older urban areas, or if we start to fix that trend, they can spur local development that moves jobs, tax base, and investments to these new interchanges. So the idea is they really want to rethink their priorities. And they're going, this is the staff of NOACA that's recommending these. And the full board has 46 members from all five of their counties will vote on this uh, June 11th. Will this result in lawsuits from the places that were counting on these interchanges to boost their economic development? That's a really good question. Maybe. I mean, the idea is they used to look at just these traditional measures and they could point to measurements and say, here's the best spot for it to be because of traffic congestion, safety, air pollution, economic benefits. Now they're looking at racial and economic equity and environmental sustainability in their decision-making. So maybe they can point to these metrics and say, this is the fair way to do it, but that doesn't mean they're not going to have angry members of NOACA. Yeah, I just, it's one of those where it's a property rights thing. And if you own land that would be serviced by this, you've got a huge financial interest. Remember what happened with Avon. They wanted an interchange out where the, the clinic now has a hospital they couldn't get anywhere with it. So they, they pretty much came up with their own funding plan for it to get it done. And you just wonder if there's enough financial interest, whether people can overcome NOACA trying to act as a central planning agency. We've talked for years about the sprawl we have and how mm-hmm. devastating it's been in many ways, but it's also allowed people to move where they want to live. So I think this is going to probably spark a whole lot of interesting debate but good for NOACA to stand up and try and take a position, right? Right. And one thing that they're not fighting about is the um, proposal at Brecksville, where Miller Road is, where they are going to build the Sherwin-Williams office building, their research and development, I believe. And right now that only has a north side entrance and exit. Uh, You'd have to go another exit to go on the south side. So they want to make that a full interchange. But there's still some kind of controversy there because this is going to move jobs from Warrensville Heights to Brecksville. The staff is recommending that they discuss compensating the other two cities for lost jobs and taxes. So this is not just, you know, talking about roads like this is a much bigger issue. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How bad is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's relationship with his fellow Republicans who control the legislature? Jane Cahoon, it's almost like he's a Democrat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, DeWine and his fellow Republicans who lead the Ohio House and Senate 
would tell you that everything is just fine. They they don't always agree on policy. They're independent branches of government, so nothing to see here. No, no bad relationship. But Andrew Tobias laid out many examples of DeWine basically running into a buzzsaw in the legislature with his priorities. You, you can start with the gun reforms that he proposed in 2019 after the mass shooting in Dayton. I mean, we heard him week after week at his briefings talking about people dying from gun violence and pushing for these reforms, but the legislature basically ignored him. So he he rolled that into his budget proposal, and the House last week stripped that out before they voted on their version of the budget. And that version also did not include the $50 million that DeWine proposed for a tourism campaign promoting Ohio, particularly to people who may consider moving here from more expensive areas of the country. And they nixed another one of his pet projects from the transportation budget. They took out his initiative to fight distracted driving. But perhaps, you know, the most aggressive they have been is when it comes to DeWine's coronavirus orders. The the House version of the budget would actually force the DeWine administration to refund fines that they issued against bars and restaurants for COVID safety violations and would reinstate liquor licenses for bars that lost them for the same reason. I mean, I thought that was a real slap down to the governor's administrative authority, you know, basically giving a pardon to the to the violators. And then, of course, they took the extraordinary step of overriding his veto of that bill that reigns in his power to issue the, the health order. So basically, it's been one rebuke after another at a time when you know, DeWine's gearing up for his re-election. Well, it's also an example of yet another example of how bad things can get with gerrymandered districts. Basically, we've we've created a one-party system in the state, which has no objections, which leads to the kind of corruption and bribery scandal that has just kind of shaken the whole state. But it's also now reduced the power of the governor. I mean, we used to have kind of three equally powerful branches of government, right? The legislative, the executive, the judicial. But we don't because the legislature is so gerrymandered. One of the bodies has all the power. And it's it's really been a, a disaster in many ways. We have people that have gotten in the way of Ohio healing from the pandemic because of ridiculous party nonsense. And so here's the question. Why would you want to be governor in this state for neither party? Because you got no power to do anything except stand up twice a week and blather on about uh, your policies. <laughs> He's taken it from both sides, you know, Republicans from the right. And Nan Whaley's are already using it in her Democratic campaign for governor, you know, saying he's he's weak. I, I, I would but, like to jump into the discussion here. This is Layla Tassi. So, I mean, the politicizing of public health, I think, has hurt DeWine more than more than anything. Who is his base now? Who who do you think he will depend on for reelection? Probably well, the more traditional, you know, wing of the party. Well, I mean, everybody. I, that's I not going to do it in Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, well, his his popularity ratings were through the roof. We haven't seen a recent poll, but I do think a lot of centrist Ohioans respect him for how he navigated through this. People can quibble about different decisions and challenge him for different failures like unemployment and the <laughs> vaccine distribution yeah. in the beginning. But but I think most people saw him as doing his best to get through. 
But who knows? I mean, it's a it's a question. Nan Whaley calling him weak for not being able to get stuff through the legislature. She's a Democrat. What does she think <laughs> she's going to be able to do? I mean, that's kind of a. Well, she said he doesn't stand up to his own party. But he does. They just slap him silly and push him <laughs> back in his hole. So I'll tell you, though, I, 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 you know, I love I know a lot of Democrats who respect the job that that DeWine did on the coronavirus and, and you know, all the you know, how he stood up, you know, against his own party to keep us safe. But they will not vote for him. <laughs> I mean, it will take a lot to overcome the the Trumpiness and, and all of that to get a to, to get a lot of, of hardcore Democrats to vote for Mike DeWine. Well, and then Welly will present. I mean, she's probably the best Democratic statewide candidate we've right. had in 20 years. She's charismatic. She's got energy. She's got youth. The contrast she will offer to DeWine is pretty mm-hmm. remarkable. I mean, she follows a long line of lackluster Strickland and Fitzgerald and Cordray. I mean, what a difference this could be. So, yeah, I don't think Democrats will be voting for DeWine over over somebody like Nan Whaley if she prevails. It's this week in the CLE. How is former Northeast Ohio Congresswoman Marsha Fudge helping transgender people in her new role leading the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development? Leila Tassi, we we keep figuring that Marsha Fudge will leave her mark in this new position. And this is one of the first things she's done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Fudge Fudge canceled a, a Trump policy proposal that would have let federally funded single sex Homeless shelters deny service to transgender people on the basis of their biological sex, even if their gender identity matched those served by the shelter. The Trump administration's argument for this proposal last summer was that requiring these shelters to house transgender people discouraged some religiously run shelters from participating in HUD programs. And they also argued that it didn't consider the shelters need to take care of the mental health and privacy concerns of at-risk clients, such as those who are victims of domestic violence and dating violence and sexual assault and things like that. I'm not exactly sure how that argument about protecting victims of violence connects to discriminating against transgender people, but I guess that was Trump for you. Uh, I have no idea what what kind of uh, argument that is. Anyway, transgender people Transgender people face a, a disproportionately high likelihood of homelessness with with one in three experiencing homelessness at some point in their life. And using a shelter that doesn't conform to one's gender identity can be incredibly dangerous and leading to victimization. And often that means that people choose the streets instead of shelter. So I think we should be proud of a fudge for this policy change. And uh yeah, it's it's a great first step. Right. It's a great first step. It's going to be fun to see what she does over the next four years. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the Armand Budish administration breaking the rules with how it accounts for $2.4 million paid by Huntington Bank for the naming rights to the county's convention center? Lord Johnston, is this another another example of incompetence by this administration? Well, it certainly raises the question. I don't think we have an answer yet, but this came up on Friday when the attorney for the Convention Facilities Development Corporation Board that oversees the convention center told the board that he doesn't believe the administration has set aside the money in these segregated accounts that are required by legal agreements. And this is coming up because they want to renovate the global center. 
attached to the convention center, once known as the Med Mart, to be more of an extension of the convention center. They want to add more restrooms and escalators, make it easier for people to use. And some of that money, which it could cost 10 to $20 million, could come from the naming rights. The city is supposed to use their naming right money to improve Mall B, the grassy slope above it, as well as Mall C. The county is supposed to use theirs for improvements. But we don't know where that money is. And the spokespeople that Courtney and Stolfi contacted on Friday were not able to give answers immediately. Well, they're going to have to answer the council, right? Yes. I mean, eventually, I mean, they can ignore us, although it doesn't really proved to be an effective tool for avoiding <laughs> bad news, but they can't avoid the council. And the council is the one that's saying, hey, where is this? You're supposed to keep this segregated. So we'll have to see whether they come back with a good answer. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Ohio going to change one of the ways it reports on the coronavirus to provide more localized information? Jane Cahoon, is this something people are clamoring for? Well, I guess the local health departments had requested it. What what they're going to do is the Ohio Department of Health is going to add this feature to its dashboard to report coronavirus positivity rates by county. And they're going to be based on a person's county of residence. So Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, the chief medical officer, said that 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 is in response to requests from local health departments. They want better localized data to make decisions on on how to respond to the spread. They're going to update this each Monday. It's going to have a color-coded map where you can hover over counties. And now, you know, it's it's going to be useful, I guess, but I think this comes with what I think is a really big caveat. And that is these rates are the result of who is choosing to get tests or people who might be required to get tests you know, not just sick people who go in and get tested. So, for example, healthy people get tests ahead of vacations or business trips, and both professional and college athletes have to undergo testing. So it's not a fully accurate picture of the infection rates. So, and Vanderhoff cautioned, you know, don't look at these numbers in isolation. So I don't know what you think about the relative usefulness of this. Well, it, it the feeling I get is this is all all becoming almost meaningless in many ways because the country's about to reopen. I think by this time next month that all restrictions will be gone, that the people who wanted a shot will have gotten the shot, and the people that didn't will be risking being sick. But you're hearing from more and more workplaces that I was talking to somebody today in a major employer in town. They plan to have in-person team meetings for the first time this week in more than a year. So that the reporting of all these numbers that we paid attention to, to get to the point where we get back to something resembling normal, doesn't really matter because we're going to get back to being almost normal anyway. Sort of remember way back when, when we were clamoring for this kind of information, it, it does seem like kind of late, late in the game. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan first suggested removing Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption to retaliate for the moving of the All-Star game out of Georgia. Now he's getting more specific in his attack. Leila Tassi, how is he doing that? Oh, this guy again. <laughs> he, he wants all the documents and communications related to MLB's decision to move the All-Star game out of Georgia. So Jordan and Kentucky's rep, James Comer, and Georgia's representative, Jody Heiss, sent 
Commissioner Rob Manfred a letter calling it, quote, attempted economic extortion that has harmed small businesses in and around Atlanta. And this letter cites, you know, $65 million in regional economic activity that they say the All-Star Game brought to Cleveland in 2019. And they say that, you know, Atlanta was looking forward to experiencing that same good fortune. Of course, you know, MLB moved the game out of Georgia in protest of Georgia's new restrictive voting laws that would make it a misdemeanor to hand out snacks or beverages to anyone standing in line to vote and would impose a new photo ID requirement for voting by absentee mail. It's not hard to imagine how these restrictions could disenfranchise voters, but the Republicans don't see it that way. They're arguing that you know, these are necessary measures to restore confidence in the voting system, despite the fact that the November election was the most secure in history. Any claims to the contrary of that are just absolute fiction. But anyway, the game is moving to Denver. And Jordan contends that Colorado's voting laws are even more restrictive than Georgia's. And in this letter, he also calls MLB's opposition to Georgia's, quote, voter integrity measures unabashedly hypocritical in light of, of, of its partnerships with, you know, communist regimes in China and Cuba that suppress free and fair elections in order to promote baseball in, in their countries. So the letter gives Manfred until May 6th, May 6th to provide these documents. And then what? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what happens here. This is just it's such a silly more, story. <laughs> is it just more grandstanding? Is it just to get attention? Because we do give him attention and people love to give him I attention. I mean, I think so. I mean, don't we have a policy against <laughs> letting people like this get all the attention? Oh, man. Well, he is in Congress, although yeah, he is in I the know. minority. This is Jane Cahoon. Sorry. Yeah. That yeah, I mean, but when, when one of our Congress people does something that seems as preposterous as this, it does seem like you have no choice but to point it out. I mean, going after baseball, it's, it's grandstanding and trying to claim this is going to hurt the people of Georgia. Yeah, this is baseball taking a stand against messing with voting rights as much of corporate America has. So Jordan is always good for going with, you know, the populist notion among the fringe far right. Right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. As a decades-long error with a historical marker for the home of pioneering football coach John Heisman, finally been corrected. Larry Johnston, this is one of the strangest stories. For years and years, they had the marker at the wrong house. Yes, they did, since 1978. And they put it up at 2825 Bridge Avenue because that's where they thought Heisman was born. But the marker was based on these old records. And sometime around 1906, there are a bunch of street name and house number changes that took place. And so odd and even numbers were switched. And even though it was about a decade ago that this was first question saying, I think the sign's at the wrong place, it took that long to get it in the right place. Now it's at 3928 Bridge Avenue, about a quarter of a mile away from the original sign. Also, the birth date has been corrected. October 3rd instead of October 23rd, 1869. Yeah, everybody knows about the Heisman Trophy, right? Well, Heisman was born in what was then Ohio City, and then he coached at Oberlin and Bookdale, which is now the University of Akron, uh, before he went on to Auburn, Clemson, University of Pennsylvania, a couple other schools. So he is a, an Ohio guy through and through. Yeah, it's just bizarre how long 
after they knew this was wrong, it stayed wrong. So what about the people who own and live in the home where the where the placard used to be? I mean, that gave their property some, uh, you know, a boost in its value, I can only imagine. And so don't they feel sort of sad about losing that designation? I don't know. Well, they could put a historical marker up now saying that for 40 years, this was the incorrect location of the marker. I would rather see that almost than the, the real one. It's kind of amazing that it could be wrong for so long. Right. And it was a resident who made this happen. She's a 33-year resident of Ohio City. Her name is Faye Harris, and her mission is to hold politicians' feet to the flames and apparently to get things corrected. So she actually got money from casino revenue funds for a marker and then actually put up a new, very pretty, like, black iron fence instead of a chain link one. So this is all neighborhood activism that got this done, which you got oh, I know Faye Harris. She's awesome. She's yeah. great. We need to find out. If this is the record for the longest period with an error on a historical marker, <laughs> oh, I'm sure then you not. could put up a new historical marker saying on this site, we have the record. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 